we've reached a point in the use of technology and the use of data where really important practical results are more expected than they are occasionally occurring. And I think that we are going to need to continue to focus, to do high quality and impactful work around technology and data rather than me-toos and follow-ons. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A self-described nerdy kid from a working class family in a bedroom community of the city on the south shore of Long Island, Paul Bleicher trained as a physician scientist and was heading towards a career in academic medicine when he boldly decided to pivot to industry, where he's enjoyed a remarkable and storied career in a range of large and small organizations, often very different, but sharing a focus on collecting and using data. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytic capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, Lisa, I yes. insist today on um, starting the show, spending just a couple, not to bring everyone down, but spending a few minutes talking about um, actually two recent blog posts uh, or two, an article on the blog post. One was a recent Forbes piece that I read, very poignant about um, Zappos CEO, the last couple of yeah. months of Zappos CEO, um, Tony Seth. And then um, the recent blog post that you wrote, which we, we linked to both pieces, which I found uh, incredibly resonant and important, essentially giving everyone permission to acknowledge, even professionally, the general crappiness of everything during the pandemic. Do you want to amplify on that for a minute? You know, it's funny. I was talking to a, a large group of friends, so, you know, sort of a, a women's sport group I'm in. And um, it's a very, it's sort of like safe space kind of stuff, you know, and I was expressing my general misery. They were saying, you know, nobody really talks about this out loud in public and everybody's feeling the same way and you should use your blog platform to write about it. And so I was like, oh, sure, why not? I'll just tell everybody that I'm a disastrous mess. But I know that everybody else is too. And I think I've got more responses to this piece than any I've ever written. A lot of I'm not private, surprised. A lot of private emails from people saying, oh, my God, I feel so bad. You know, I feel bad talking about it because, you know. I haven't died. Nobody I know has died. You know, it's not that type of thing, but, but, you know, and so I feel guilty talking about my own misery in context of the, the truly awful misery of others. It was interesting to, to both get validated from my own set perspective, but also to hear how widespread that set of feelings is. Yeah. Well, I thought it was really um, brave and important to talk about it. It was expressed, you know, with your, your characteristic sort of warmth, candor, and honesty. Uh, I think what everyone is sort of feeling and maybe not even want to acknowledging to ourselves, much less anybody else. So I, I just love that. I'm, I'm sure I'll have a chance Thank to share you. it even, even, even wide, more widely. Glad so moving forward, what do David Kessler, Harvey Milk, Stan Lee, and our guest, Paul Bleicher, have in common? The answer, of course, is that they all grew up not in Jersey, like most of our guests, apparently, <laughs> but the uh, but in the five towns of Long Island. 
I have to ask him about a Buttafuoco. Um, but it's also featured prominently in pop culture. Is that right, Paul? It's uh, it's made its way into pop culture. We were the first time I ran into it was in V, the Thomas Pynchon book, uh, where it starts off the book. But um, a lot of the uh, the wife in Goodfellas actually was from my neighborhood uh, in reality because it's a it's a true story. And there's a bunch of little scenes uh, also from The Godfather. Uh, the uh, toll booth scene was uh, in Long Beach, close to our house, and. Uh, and um, in uh, Entourage as well, so which I've never seen, but I'm told uh, that they completely missed. They but you need so to I say, do us a favor and say Long Island properly. <laughs> Long Island. Thank you. You saw me cringe, Lisa, actually. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, how dare he? No one ever talks like that. Um, uh, and I assume you had re relatively good cannolis in your neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I know there, uh, that a lot of, there's a lot of focus on the Italian stuff, but the neighborhood was really um, uh, actually a heavily Jewish neighborhood, one of the most Jewish neighborhoods, I think, in, in the country, and it's gotten even much more so uh, over, uh, since I've left. But um, yeah. Yeah, I guess that wasn't my, what, I rec what I remembered most about um, Goodfellas and The Godfather, <laughs> but I, may have mis <laughs> I, I must have misremembered the... Uh, uh, the, the Miami scenes. But anyway, um, all right. So so Paul, Paul grew up in a working class family and described himself as a nerdy kid and uh, with activities like astronomy and bridge club. I imagine we can believe him. Um, at, the, uh, at, at the age of 14, or as we would say in the house that I grew up in quite late, he realized he wanted to be an MD, PhD. <laughs> drawn by books like Aerosmith and Microbe Hunters. What was it about those books, um, which, which I certainly remember Microbe Hunters, uh, Paul Ducruf. What was it about those books that especially resonated with you, Paul? Well, Aerosmith was just an incredible book. If, um, and this is a book, Lisa, not just the uh, the rock group. The, the rock band, yeah. We're not talking I say, Walk This Way is one of my favorite songs. <laughs> yeah. Stay no, classy. Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis. Um is a is a really amazing book because it's about a young idealistic doctor um, who goes to medical school, then gets influenced by uh, professors uh, at a fictionalized the uh, Rockefeller, uh, uh, you know, the Rockefeller, and get uh, gets influenced to go into research, and he goes back into. Um, goes back into medical practice and he uh, he winds up, this is so early, discovering bacteriophage and, um, and there, you know, his wife died. Oh, I shouldn't give it away. Uh, but in spoiler case, alert. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Right. Um, but it is, it's just, an, a, it, it was a and compelling it spoke story. Yeah. It spoke to me. It was, it was about um, someone who had passion and was interested in science, but also in caring for people. And it, it just it is exactly where I, uh, you know, where your head was. So following that thread, you studied biology at RPI, attending summer programs in cell physiology at uh, Woods Hole, uh, and then ultimately uh, was accepted into the uh, MD-PhD program at the University of Rochester, where uh, you pursued um, your PhD in immunology and on the medical side, um, learned about George Engels' biopsychosocial model, which I thought was both interesting and after disappearing for a while, it seems, is now suddenly incredibly relevant. I don't want to spend the whole show on it, but I, could you spend a couple of minutes just telling what that is? Because I, I, I think it would be really, it, it feels incredibly contemporary. 
Yeah, it was. And and so I, I was in medical school uh, back in, in 1976, I started. And at that time, it was well- Were there still four humors? Yeah. <laughs> it was well established, thank you, uh, <laughs> that the biopsychosocial model from uh, George Engel, I can name them, by the way, David, if you want. Um, but um, it, it, this model, um, was essentially that typically medicine thought of patients as being uh, as having a medical disease and we talked about patients that way but in fact Engel recognized and I'm going to not do its service but um, that that the patient was in a milieu which was their own psychological milieu and also in a milieu of their community and their family and uh, and all of that and all of those things were just as important to address and understand about the patient than uh, than the, as important as the disease and so um, you looked at a patient in a more holistic fashion. I just was recently at my uh, uh, reunion, my Zoom reunion of my uh, original medical school class. Uh, and uh, we all talked about the fact that, that that was something that really set us apart from Rochester is very unique in, in appreciating this and understanding it and applying it uh, as we went forward, trying to apply it at least. Um, but, uh, and I went right from Rochester to Harvard Medical School where that was not a prevailing a way of, of thinking about things. But now it's been, you know, some, I don't even want to count the years, but all of a sudden in the last 10 or 15 years, the social determinants of health uh, and all of that are coming back. And I've heard people talking about the biopsychosocial model as being newly invented as, as a new concept. And it, uh, yeah, it's a little bit uh, frustrating. It's interesting, Paul, that when I was, I was working back in the, in the late eighties, early nineties at a behavioral health company that had, basically the same underlying approach, which was if you could manage people's um, environmental conditions and, ha and get their mental health stabilized, that their medical health would be better. I left there in the late 90s and like never heard that concept talked about again for a very, very long time until I'd say even for me more recently um, to the point you guys have made the recently there's been, you know, a whole spate of companies set up, for-profit companies set up to address this so-called social determinants of health. What do you think about that? Is that a thing that can be productized and serving the communities? Well, you know, it's interesting. We, uh, we actually, uh, at Optum Labs, which we haven't gotten to at this point, but I uh, had a, developed an asset with a hundred different parameters of, um, of, um, health data, which included outcomes uh, and included social determinants of health uh, and characteristics of the healthcare system. And uh, we actually developed that into a tool that allowed the comparison and identification of similarities between communities. Uh, and it wound up getting incorporated into a tool. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's necessarily a, um, a standalone tool, but I think that uh, th there are great opportunities to intervene in that. And you probably know Rebecca Oni's organization, mm -hmm. um, which no, well. which involved uh, medical students who uh, who or premeds actually who worked in doctors' offices and took prescriptions from the doctor and then addressed social needs. I think something like that as a service is is a really potentially valuable thing.
So um, let's zoom forward a little bit. So you, uh, I know that, you, as you were saying, you continued your education and training at Harvard, um, internal medicine, dermatology, sort of a visible manifestation of immunology, a robust postdoc with a leading Harvard immunologist, had a series of um, very high profile publications, landed a physician scientist, plum physician scientist job at MGH. Um, and so at this point, you dreamt of becoming an MD, PhD, you now, you, you did it. You're, you have faculty appointment at um, one of the premier places for a physician scientist, hashtag winning. Um, and so from an outside perspective, it really seems like you were crushing it, but yet um, you thought something was missing. So tell us um, what you did next and how you came to that decision. My perspective on, uh, on medicine, and I think informed by Aerosmith and, and a lot of other things is that I, I really wanted to do things that would that would make change, uh, that would affect the way that we um, that we practice medicine and took care of patients. And while the basic science work that I was doing, um, which has eventually uh, things that I initiated, eventually came back to explain poison ivy and a variety of other things in in my you know uh, specialty dermatology, it, it just wasn't fast enough for me. It wasn't uh, as direct enough for me. And so I was really interested in translate what I call translation. Uh, and and I felt the way to do that was through entrepreneurial uh, methods and, and you know through an entrepreneurial pathway. Originally, I, I thought about biotech, um, but I realized that there were really great opportunities uh, in biotech uh, in the in the taking of uh, of some of the basic science that was being done. Uh, and turning it into uh, clinical trials and clinical research. And, and I was heavily influenced at that point by my wife. Uh, my wife had actually, uh, by accident, stumbled into one of the first immunology biotech companies in Boston. She was um, very successful leading research there. Uh, and I saw, I saw something really interesting. I saw in academics where I was living, that uh, everybody was friendly. I had great friends there. Um, but in general, the academic style was you were on your own, you had some collaborators, um, you could potentially work with people, but people were busy. They had to write their own papers, they had to get their own grants, they had to do everything. And so it was hard. Whereas at a company I saw for her, when, when she walked down the hall and said, I have a problem, she could assemble a meeting and everybody would be focused on that problem uh, and deal with it. And it would be a collaborative effort from the beginning to the end. And I saw it's, great science being done there. It's so, so interesting because um, on a recent podcast, we actually had my wife uh, talking about um, a transition from academia uh, uh, to, um, to, and that was one of the, uh, to industry. And that was one of the points that she had actually made where uh, was, was the sort of the, the, the opportunity, you know, what can be accomplished as, as part of a team um, where I hear everything is cool when you're part of a team uh, and uh, Lego movie. How do you like that, Lisa? Um, so, but so of all, Lisa's speechless, which is unusual. So of all the industries to do, I mean, this is what, again, is so You're very intriguing, Paul. Um, so you decided to take a job at a contract research organization called Paraxel. And you said you learned the entire industry in a year. Like, tell us, like, how, why CRO versus any, like of all things? Um, and then like, you know, briefly, very briefly, like sort of like, what was the deal with that? Well, 1992, 
Um, there weren't a lot of physicians out there who were uh, in industry, except at pharma companies. And, and so I naively wrote to 40 biotech companies and said, hey, I'd like to come and, and do research uh, with you and uh, got no responses. So I did some networking and realized that I didn't I didn't have the background that I needed to to do what I needed to do. If I, I could have gone on in as a basic scientist, but I wanted to go into clinical research. Uh, and so going into Parkcell at that early days, uh, early stage, I was able to gain a tremendous amount of, uh, of experience. I happened into leading uh, an entire uh, project for a new drug uh, that was actually a high profile new drug that a biotech company had licensed. And, and I learned everything about the clinical trial process from there. Uh, and then the second half of what I did at, at Parkcell was to um, actually work with early phase biotech companies that were doing things. We brought the first gene therapy actually to the FDA or one of the first gene therapies to the FDA um, way, way, way back in the early 90s wow. uh, because I had the scientific background as well as the clinical background. So it was a good combination. So that's remarkable. So I, I know that then you actually left to join a biotech company, I, I think to continue some of this development, but then you hatched a plan for your company of your own and you founded your own kind of remarkable uh, CRO called Phase Forward, which set you off on a 13 year journey. Could you um, tell us what was the deal with that? Sure. I, um, you know, first I, I think of it as a pharma IT company, not as a, a CRO, even though we did have services. Um, and for those of you who don't know what Face Forward did, we basically developed the concept of web-based uh, clinical trials and uh, for uh, quite some time owned about half the industry um, before it was acquired by Oracle. What, uh, what I was thinking about is I had a lot of exposure to the old-fashioned electronic data capture where you wheeled computers into uh, investigators' office and it was cumbersome and didn't work. And so I thought, this web thing, which, and I was kind of a techie. So this web thing from uh, back in, this is, we're talking 1994, 95, when I started thinking about it, um, this could work for this. And that's a time when nobody thought that doctors would ever use a computer or would ever use the web for, for anything or the web, anything that would involve medical information. And I remember so I, Paul, back at that time, I mean, not to interrupt you, but I remember your company. I remember I was a venture capitalist at the time. The flat part of the J curve was really long, <laughs> seven year overnight sensation or something like that. Right. Right. There was a long J curve before us. And then there was a J curve that included us. Mm -hmm. um, but when it took off that uh, it was a, you know, a very significant uh, a force in the industry. And uh, so the idea of using the web for this just came naturally because I was kind of techie oriented and geeky and it goes even to the things I, I do in my spare time today. Um, I enjoy it. And it's, um, it, it, it was just a lot of fun having that company. What was the problem that you were solving? Like who, what, what, what were you doing? Right. So the problem is that paper, clinical trials were done on paper. Uh, which meant they were done on three-part NCR forms uh, in order to make sure that the investigator and the, um, and the, the company were all playing honestly. The, they had to be divided up and stored separately uh, and only changes to it could be made in person by the doctor 
but you had to verify the information from the actual medical record. So that process, that complex process was very painful. It took months literally to get uh, to get the data finalized. And that happened all during the clinical trial. And then at the end of the clinical trial, uh, it, it typically could delay the end of a clinical trial by six months. This is while the patent clock is ticking and the revenue clock is ticking. Uh, you're waiting for uh, the data to get cleaned up uh, to the point where you can lock the database and do the analysis. And so what we did is, we brought forward all of that and made it so that the data didn't have to be transcribed onto um, paper records. They were transcribed electronically. You could automate some of the um, uh, some of the review, and you could manually do some of the review at a distance in real time. So, Paul, now you know you're looking forward, right? So now it's been ten years or something mm-hmm. since you sold that company, right? And the next, the next hill to climb for pharma has been virtualizing trials and doing, you know, some remote clinical trial work. And once again, we're right back at the, oh boy, this is really hard phase of this, you know, adopt tech adoption curve. And I think just the, it's because of the pandemic, it's been changed, the trajectory of that, but it wasn't going that well, to be frank. What do you, again, what do you think is the cause of that? Um, you know, having gone through one technology change in the clinical trials world, why has it been so hard to make the next hill climb? Well, and there are a lot of hill climbs. There's also the collection. I'm actually working, I'm on the board of a company that's working on um, kind of uh, patient-oriented registry information where you get a lot of value as well uh, mm-hmm. during clinical and uh, and outside of clinical uh, development. But I think, you know, in terms of the, the virtual uh, trial uh, concept, it's it's early on, even though people have computers, they're clumsy uh, to use for a lot of people. Uh, it, it's still not necessarily a part of the workflow of physicians uh, to, to use separate uh, non-EHR based uh, uh, technologies. And the collection of, um, of uh, patient outcome information from devices and, and individually from patients is, is challenging. It's, it's a hodgepodge of technologies. And we saw this at phase forward. That, that I learned this actually from our CEO, uh, uh, our second CEO, Bob Weiler, who had come from uh, being the CEO of a bunch of tech companies, that what happens is you get a bunch of individual solutions, all of which are are you become better and better at what they're doing, but they're individual solutions. They have to coalesce into a suite of solutions so that you, you can do one-stop shopping. You can, you can basically use the suite and get all of the different functions rather than having to paste together many different functions. I think that's part of the issue. More integrated and less of a pastiche. Right. And in addition, there's issues around the FDA acceptance of data that it's not collected in a more formal, yeah. uh, uh, structured environment, et cetera. There are many different reasons, but I think some, those are some of the important ones. Just to make sure that we get to it, um, I know that um, after your journey there, um, you then um, joined kind of in a, in a, a very, you know, because of all your experience as sort of a wise CMO at a, a company uh, that we know about called uh, you sort of a, a very early sort of like health data company, Umedica, uh, which you might tell us about, which was then acquired by Optimum, and you went on to become CEO of Optum Labs. Could sure. you um, tell us a bit about that? Uh, 
Optum Labs or Humedica or both? Well, about how uh, you wound up first at um, Umedica, what was that trying right. to do? And sure. then your subsequent experience at Optum Labs. Yeah. So I, at, you know, towards the end of, uh, after we'd gone public, um, I had run acquisitions uh, for a number of uh, companies at FaceForward. Uh, I was looking for another challenge. Uh, and um, while I stayed on the board at FaceForward, I, I found I was approached by an investor at Humedica who had invested in, in Pace Forward. And, and um, I decided to, to you know, take a demotion, if you will, from the CEO level to, and chairman level to uh, chief medical officer because I was joining a great team. Uh, I was going to learn about uh, the healthcare IT world, very different than the pharma IT world, about healthcare data, very different than pharma data. Uh, and about the entire payer provider uh, uh, interface and pharma interface. Uh, and so I joined uh, Humedica as chief medical officer where I had the opportunity to, to learn a lot about uh, healthcare analytics and apply some machine learning, artificial intelligence about healthcare data, about, um, about uh, the kind of value that, uh, that companies get out of healthcare data. And that changed dramatically in the existence of, of Humedica because we started off where it was a nice to know. And, and that, at that point, Barack Obama was a senator. He became president. The ACA became the, way, the direction we were going. And all of a sudden, everything we were doing was extremely important as we talked about bundled payments and other reimbursement methods, et cetera. The, the, the providers need, needed to understand it. The sale of the, of the de-identified data to uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, and to others who were interested was an important one uh, but it, it, it didn't change as much as, you know, the provider data did. So uh, we had acqu acquired some, you know, 30 million uh, patient lives or so uh, in the United States, and we became attractive to Optum. Optum acquired us, and um, I, all of a sudden the Humedica team became responsible for a lot of the uh, provider-oriented analytics at, at Optum. And I decided to, um, to join Optum Labs, which had been formed, but did not have a CEO. Uh, and, uh, and I sort of took over as the founding CEO and built that organization. So Paul, what do you think is the biggest difference between working on the pharmaceutical biotech side of the world and working in the payer data side of the world? Oh, it, it's just a totally different world. Obviously, pharma and, and provider payer touch in, in a, a very significant way. But you have to, where I was working in pharma was in clinical development um, and not in market uh, markets or in reimbursement or any of that, uh, you know, those areas of pharma. Um, so just understanding the motivations and the interests of providers from a pharma perspective, it's always, what are the best drugs? What are the, what are the adverse events of the drugs? What are the, you know, what's the efficacy of the drugs? There are many, many different considerations around, uh, both, uh, the logistic and practical aspects of delivery of healthcare. There are, uh, in the United States at least, financial considerations that providers uh, care about. And obviously, payers uh, are driven, as I learned from being part of United Health Group, 
payers are driven by do, by doing the best that they can from uh, for uh, for their patients as well, and providers, but also having financial goals as uh, you know as uh, many of them private and some public companies, but um, the, it. Pharma is sort of singularly focused in a way because even disease management uh, programs are um, are centered around the drugs that they're selling, uh, and their educational programs are centered around that. Whereas uh, provider payer has to be much more holistic, and it includes pharma, but not uh, as the major um, issue. Yeah, I've been finding as I've do, you know more and more I work with pharma, and I come from the opposite direction, going doing a lot more work with pharma is that they they continue to be shocked uh, by the you know payer provider especially economic dynamics that affect what they need to do and um, I'm so surprised that you know that they don't come together more closely that they don't you know do more to understand each other's positions well there's a there's a, a natural repulsion that's been developed by um, for a variety of reasons and um, w- without you know, uh, casting any blame on anybody. I think it, it just is there. Uh, it's been amplified in places like the New England Journal of Medicine, et cetera. And so there's a wariness, I think, of of relationships, even though there are some, you know, significant joint goals. But I, you're right that pharma doesn't, you know, are just increasingly surprised that people choose to use the wrong drugs or, or use the drugs in the wrong ways um, when all of that information is, Characterized and available, and and um, uh, and made uh, palatable, not palatable, made uh, available to the physicians by the pharmaceutical companies. So, um, for sort of final question, um, uh, Paul, where do you, you know, you you were sort of like an eminence grease at the uh, intersection <laughs> of uh, data and pharma. Where are you um, uh, most excited about? I mean, you're involved, like you're saying, in so many things. You serve on boards. You're advising so many players. Um, and you see everything. Um, and I, your people are constantly, invi- I know this for a fact, they're constantly um, uh, inviting you to, to beseeching you. Um, what are you most excited about now? You know, I'm, I'm excited. I think that um, we've gone through the peak of expectations, uh, if you will, uh, uh, and, and into the valley of despair uh, using the Gartner uh, methodology, um, and I think we're we're rising up to the plateau of usefulness. I, I'm not getting these <laughs> names exactly right, but in in the use of te- digital technologies, uh, in the um, in the use of data, I think people are are begin have had the difficult issues that uh, reside around the use of these technologies. And they've begun to actually find sweet spots. Artificial intelligence is another place where I think there's a lot of opportunity. And finally, uh, one of the things that's re- that I find really, really important is um, causality. Being able to apply causal inference and causal reasoning to the predictions that come out of artificial intelligence, because that is going to enable us. And and we now have more and more structured ways to do that. That's gonna enable us to actually not only be able to predict who's gonna do badly or who's gonna do well or whatever we wanna predict, but it's gonna enable us 
to um, to actually figure out which are the levers that we can change uh, and make use of those levers through remote and digital technologies and even in person. And the causal stuff, are there, um, you know, people have been, you know, there's been a sort of a, a, kind of a sub-community of people who are extraordinarily, I know them, uh, as we've talked about, are uh, extraordinarily excited about it. Are there a couple of players you've seen who seem to be making progress? Well, I, you know, there are, there are the real leaders. Um, Miguel Hernan is one of them. Uh, Jamie Rock. Translation. Yeah, no, no, no. I recognize in academia, yeah. we can name, we can name right. that off the top of our heads. But in terms of translating it on the entrepreneurial side. It's just beginning. Um, I actually have met with a couple of entrepreneurs who are, uh, who are putting together causal reasoning, uh, causal inference companies. Uh, and I think you're going to see more and more of those as, um, as time goes on. Uh, it, it, it's essential because we, we go between Scylla and Charybdis uh, with a lot of these uh, predictions and, and it's messy. We need to actually refine what we're doing because we don't have, we don't have the luxury, if you and I don't, luxury is the wrong word, but we, we, we can't afford to make a bunch of mistakes and, um, and bounce our way through the care of patients, which is pretty much what we do today. And it, it won't get all that much better um, if we're predicting things that we can't change, if you will. Very interesting. Well, we're so appreciative of you being here on the show, sharing some of your uh, wisdom with us. And I just thought it was so fascinating. Yeah, it's good to see you, Paul. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Well, that was pretty interesting, wouldn't you say, Lisa? Yeah, no, I think Paul's a really fascinating guy. And there's not that many people who've worked on all sides of the industry like that and who can um, have such a broad perspective. Although I was struck by, we didn't really talk about the economic imperatives that drive so much of these differences. So much of things come down to the economic incentives. I, I, I know that. Well, please uh, remember to uh, rate us on your podcast app. Leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report, his writing in The Bulwark, and his occasional book reviews in The Wall Street Journal. And you can, as always, follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded yet again in quarantine. Be well. Let me out!